Good evening, everyone. My name is Joelle Murchison, and I will be your moderator this evening at the second in a series of our Unspoken Truths Forum, an opportunity for us to reflect on the murder of George Floyd, race relations, and the journey towards equity. This evening, we are joined by another set of illustrious panelists, two of whom you can see with me on screen. Um, we have two who will hopefully be joining us throughout the evening, but if for some reason they are unable to join us, I am excited to be in dialogue with these two fabulous panelists that we have this evening. Um, before I move to introduce them, what I will do initially is um, thank all of the, the sponsors for this program. Um, we have been very fortunate for some of you who joined us in the first of this series. Um, this series was born out of conversations that we held in the fall that came out of the 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones. It's a collection of essays that speak to the history of slavery and how it is continuing to impact us in our systems today. Little did we know in the fall that we would have the opportunity to return together in the summer to reflect or continue to reflect on the implications and the implicit nature of institutionalized racism as an outgrowth of slavery and its continued impact on our nation today. And so these conversations allow us as a community to come together, to learn, to express, and to then go out to begin to do the work that will allow us indeed to journey towards equity. So some of our sponsors for this evening, I will read to you um, and thank all of them for being here. First to CT Mirror, who is the technical host, um, has graciously welcomed us to use their Zoom platform. We thank you so much. Um, Charter Oak Cultural Center, Nashana, Benai Tako Shalom, Yukon Hartford, EMG, the YWCA in the Hartford region, the Amistad Center for Art and Culture, Heartbeat Ensemble, the United State of Women, the Mark Twain House and Museum, the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center, and the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center at UConn. Thank you to all of you, our sponsors, um, who have helped us to make these events possible. And so now with no further ado, I will introduce to you our panelists for the evening. Um, first, actually, let me let you all know um, the logistics. So this is a Zoom webinar, which means that you will only see those of us who are panelists or moderators on the screen. You have the opportunity via the Q&A to ask questions, and we will monitor the Q&A for any questions that you might have, which we will get to once our panelists have had an opportunity to share their reflections, and once we are able to ask some questions that have been curated for the event. Um, you will not have the ability to be seen nor heard on screen um, for those of you who might be asking. If there are any questions or concerns that you might have, you certainly can also communicate with us, the panelists and all attendees in the chat. Okay. So with that, I will introduce our panelists this evening. First, we are so grateful to Miriam Gohara for joining us. 
Miriam is a clinical associate professor of law at Yale Law School. Before joining the Yale Law faculty, Professor Gohara spent 16 years representing death sentence clients in post-conviction litigation, first as assistant counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and then as a specially designated federal public defender with the Federal Capital Habeas Project. Professor Gohara has litigated cases in state and federal courts around the United States, including the United States Supreme Court, including the United States Supreme Court, excuse me. At LDF, she also spearheaded the Mississippi Gideon Project, a policy and public education campaign which aimed to establish a quality statewide public defender system and became a model for indigent defense reform efforts nationally. Professor Gohara teaches and writes about capital and non-capital sentencing, incarceration, and the historical and social forces implicated in culpability and punishment. In the spring of 2013, Professor Gohara was a visiting clinical professor at Columbia Law School, where she taught students to represent youth and adults in civil proceedings, collateral to criminal cases, including school disciplinary hearings and housing evictions resulting from tenants' criminal prosecutions. Professor Gohara is a member of the Board of Trustees of the Neighborhood Defender Service of Harlem. She is a graduate of Harvard Law School and Columbia University. Welcome, Professor Gohara. Also, thank you. Also with us this evening, Jay Williams. Since July 2017, Jay Williams has served as president of the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. He is currently leading the foundation's efforts to address disparities in our community based on race, ethnicity, place, and income in order to make opportunities more available to everyone. Jay serves on the boards of the Metro Hartford Alliance, the Connecticut Economic Resource Center, Advanced CT, and the Chifa Community Development Corporation. In addition, he is a member of the Governor's Workforce Council and the Community Foundation Opportunity Network Governing Council. Prior to coming to the foundation, Jay served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Economic Development, where he led the federal economic development agenda for the United States. He also served as Deputy Director of the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs at the White House, where he was the principal liaison between the President of the United States and local effect elected officials. He arrived in Washington, D.C. after serving as mayor of the city of Youngstown, Ohio. Welcome this evening, Jay Williams. Thank you, Joelle. It's good to be with you and also you, Professor Gohara. You as well, Jay. Thank you. Thank you both so much for joining us. We have two other panelists. Um, who uh, we hope will be able to join us. One I know has had some travel challenges um, and I will also read their bio should they join us. Um, Neville Brooks has approximately 29 years of law enforcement experience. He retired as a deputy police chief for the city of Hartford. He has a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and is currently completing master a master's program in criminal justice with a concentration in juvenile justice. Neville is a graduate of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's National Academy at Quantico, where he was recognized for outstanding leadership by the FBI director. He's also a graduate of the Senior Management Institute for Police, as well as Leadership Greater Hartford. He is a member of the Federal Bureau of Investigation National Academy Associates, Inc., the National Association of Black Law Enforcement Executives, the Connecticut Police Chiefs Association, the International Association of Chiefs of Police 100 Club of Connecticut, 
and the Knights of Columbus. We will also be joined this evening by Brian Sims. Brian is a professional dancer in the Hartford area. He has danced with the Sonia Plum Dance Company, Fisher Ballet Productions. He's trained at the Greater Hartford Academy of Performing Arts and at the Artist Collective. Brian is currently looking forward to a first position as a professional ballerina starting in the fall. Thank you all again for joining us this evening. And we'll begin our conversation, if um, you will, by allowing our panelists to share their own reflections as we think about the notion of unspoken truths, uh, the legacy certainly of injustice and racial inequity um, and our journey towards equity. And so Professor Gohara, I would love to start with you. If you could share with us your perspective uh, on your work and how it, Im it impacts uh, the, the season that we are experiencing today. Well, thank you so much, Joelle, um, for moderating this conversation and for your generous introduction. And I also wanna thank uh, Rabbi Berman and Danessa Kali who reached out to me to invite me to this conversation. It's really lovely to be here with you all. Um, so a little bit about my how I came to do the work that I do. I, when I went to law school, I thought that I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer along the lines of um, Thurgood Marshall. I really wanted, I thought if I could end my career at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund where he, the, the law firm that he founded, that would feel like I had reached the pinnacle. And I thought that I wanted to do school desegregation work and housing injustice work and economic injustice work and employment discrimination and, and that kind of civil rights work, what I thought of as civil rights work. And then when I was in law school, I took a class in which I represented under the supervision of a practicing attorney and a professor, uh, young people who were charged with crimes associated with incidents at their schools in, in the Boston area. And invariably they were black children and brown children. And I couldn't believe it when my first client was somebody who was arrested for getting into a fight at her school. And I, I, I couldn't believe that something that would have absolutely just maybe, maybe warranted a call home from the principal in a suburban white high school was getting this child not only expelled and suspended from school, but also arrested and into the criminal justice system. And through the work that I did in that law school class, I began to realize that all the things that were so meaningful to me and what brought me to law school, all the concerns I had about educational segregation and educational inequity and disparities in healthcare and disparities in housing and neighborhood um, uh, segregation were the things that brought people into the justice system. And so in a series of extremely fortunate events, I found myself very early in my career at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund representing people who found themselves in the worst possible place in our criminal legal system, and that was on death row. And so the clients that I and my colleagues represented were people who had already been convicted and sentenced to death. And again, when we dove into people's backgrounds, because it was our job to dive into people's backgrounds and figure out how their previous lawyers um, failed to convince a jury to spare their lives. And what we found again and again and again without fail was an intense history of poverty, racial discrimination, lack of health care, lack of educational services, even for clients that had obvious special needs. And again and again, these issues would, would, would land people in the worst of our criminal legal system. And so that is what has brought me, brought me here today. And at Yale Law School, I now teach students, just as I was taught, 
to represent clients, not who are on death row, but people who are serving very long sentences or people who are facing very long sentences. Because I understand that the death penalty can be a distraction from the life sentences, the 20 year sentences, the 50 year sentences that we almost stop thinking about in this country because we are so used to exceptionally long punishments. And so what we, um, again, when we, when we dive into our clients' backgrounds, what do we see? We see the incidents and badges of enslavement. <laughs> we see that people have grown up in communities where they've been divested of every possible resource that one, I think we all would agree, children deserve. They deserve clean water. They deserve safe homes. They deserve safe playgrounds. They deserve well-resourced schools. They deserve families and parents who have the support they need to be present for their children. And these, and they deserve adequate mental and physical health care. And we find over and over and over again that our clients, whether they were convicted of um, white collar crimes, believe it or not, or homicide, because we have clients who are convicted of a range of, 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 of um, crimes, have all faced these divestments. And these are the consequences of decades and decades of decisions to lock people up instead of investing in individuals and instead of investing in their communities. So I'm really encouraged by what's happening today in the aftermath of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murders and Ahmed Aubrey's and the list could go on and on. I'm encouraged because I think now people who are demonstrating, people who are protesting and activists are insisting that the conversation have a historical context. They are not satisfied to have the conversation at the level of a few individual bad actors. They are insisting that we look at the history of enslavement and the history of devaluing black life and devaluing black bodies. And that traces itself to Jim Crow and it traces itself to enslavement. In fact, I often say, unfortunately, in some respects, enslaved black people were worth more physically to their masters because they were property. They were valuable property. And once they ceased to be property, they became dangerous and they became a threat to, to the existing white order. And um, I have so many books I can recommend, but one that has been really enlightening for me this summer is called The Condemnation of Blackness. Uh, by Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and he's a historian, and he really traces the ways in which the United States came to believe <laughs> distorted statistics and and eugenics and biological arguments about African Americans' propensity for crime. And we can't we can't divorce what's happening now from those historical factors. I'm also really encouraged now because even in small towns and suburbs like the one that I live in, a predominantly white suburb. People are protesting, senior citizens, white senior citizens. People are out, they're, they're continuing, they're pushing. So I, I find that also very, very um, encouraging. I wanna just say a minute, cause I don't wanna take up too much time we can talk about this more, about the idea of, of defund the police or abolish prisons. These are buzzwords and I will confess to you that when I heard these things for the first time, I thought, whoa, that might be a little fringe. That might be, that might be out there. And I had to really educate myself about what could those ideas mean? And I've come to understand that for many people, for the, for the people that I agree with and who support those policies, it means to think about redirecting resources from law enforcement and from corrections into the investments that our clients lack to begin with. So it means investing in mental health services. It means investing in the YMCA or the Boys and Girls Club. It means investing in community-based health organizations. It means investing in safe housing. It means investing in services for families that don't punish parents and remove children from them. 
And so these are the things that we talk about when we talk about defund the police or abolish prisons. Abolish prisons to me means what would we have in place of prisons to hold people accountable for the harms that they cause? Because people do cause harms and they do need to be held accountable, but they're not held accountable in prisons. There's, a, there's an excellent author named Danielle Serrett who wrote, wrote a book called um, Until We Reckon, and she says people do time, but instead they should do sorry. They should find ways to truly account for the harm that they cause. What else could we do to really restore crime victims, to really address the trauma and the poverty that falls, comes in the wake of crime? That's what we talk about when abolishing prisons. What could we have in place? And maybe in a little bit, I can tell you a little bit about an opportunity I had to travel to Germany where I visited some prisons where they're doing incarceration in a very, very different way. They're doing corrections and rehabilitation in a very, very different way than we do in this country. Um, and about a unit here in Connecticut in Cheshire Correctional Institution where they're modeling the work on some of those German rehabilitative programs. And I can tell you a little bit more about that. But I wanna stop talking so I give Jay a chance um, to to uh, say his piece, and um, I'm happy to discuss more about this during question and answer. Thank you so much. I've taken so many notes. I think this is going to be a really um, provocative dialogue tonight. Jay, would you share your perspective with us? Sure. Um, I arrived to the place that I am in now and the work that I'm doing after having uh, been born and raised in one of the communities that the professor described that has experienced the decades-long disinvestment of, of the resources, of the opportunities uh, that she described that are absolutely uh, a reflection and an outgrowth of the structural and systemic racism that has plagued this country for centuries. Uh, not only was I born and raised uh, in Youngstown, Ohio, which was Again, one of the most economically uh, devastated communities uh, this country, in, across the country, uh, a community that was plagued by um, the uh, inequities and disparities uh, that, that drew resources out of the central city uh, to other parts of the community and uh, was often held up as a poster child for disinvestment, for uh, deindustrialization, for crime, uh, and, and in many instances was uh, referred to as as crime town uh, USA and, and had statistics of poverty and crime that per capita uh, were unfortunately amongst the top uh, in the United States of America. So that was a city that I was born and reared in, but also uh, served as the mayor. Uh, and after 15 years of public service, uh, um, uh, nine of or 10 in, in Youngstown, Ohio, actually probably 16 or 17 years, uh, 11 years in Youngstown, Ohio, and, and six years in Washington, D.C., also um, coming to be impacted by my own lived experiences as an African-American male, uh, but as an African-American male who, you know, starting in Youngstown, served as the first uh, Black mayor of the city of Youngstown, but while serving in that capacity, still feeling the anxiety of walking into my own police department, uh, knowing that I was the you know, appointing authority for the police chief and, and all of the police officers, but uh, also not being naive to think that uh, my title as mayor uh, made me immune to uh, the forces that uh, we still see at play. Uh, you know, and I, and I would tell the young people that even, uh, you know, just the, the subconscious anxiety when a, a police cruiser pulls behind you as my seatbelt fastened, are all my papers in order? And, and, and again, this is not just as a growing up in Youngstown, this is during my time as mayor. I, I, I shared that there was never 
a moment that I walked in a police department and didn't feel some sense of anxiety. And, and you, you conduct yourself and you care yourself and, and, and you seek to advance the city, but also the tensions of in law enforcement and, and the safety and the well-being of a community, but knowing that you are uh, dealing with an institution that unfortunately, uh, you know, very much in many instances uh, manifested itself in ways that were reflective uh, of, the, of the struggle that, that the professor described. I also then spent uh, six years in, in the Obama administration uh, in a variety of capacities, uh, but, but always focused on those communities that were disinvested, uh, seeking to redirect uh, investment to those communities that had uh, suffered, uh, trying to leverage an understanding that public and federal dollars um, can be a um, patient capital, but ultimately having to try to rebuild and restructure those communities such that they could be places of fulfilled opportunity and realized potential. All a common thread through that was the notion of the role that philanthropy, uh, you know, can uh, and should and might play in this. Uh, and I found myself after uh, six years in the administration, during uh, the course of which uh, the president uh, established after the uh, murder of Michael Brown, established the a task force on 21st century policing, which laid out uh, a number of um, action steps and recommendations that unfortunately that was, that task force was established in 2015 and it was at the death of Michael Brown. But when you reread just the executive summary, uh, you can exchange the name Michael Brown for George Floyd or Breonna Tabor, uh, Breonna Taylor or Botham John, and the underlying issues still remain. And it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, you can go back even further, as, as the professor talked about, uh, you know, people may or may not remember the names of Abner Louima or Amadou Diallo. I mean, these are, these are decades old instances and the list goes on and on and on and we keep repeating that history. But I say all that to say that, uh, you know, it led me to where I am now with uh, the Hartford Foundation, a, a community foundation that about a year and a half ago uh, made a, a conscious pivot toward uh, our strategic focus. Uh, and that strategic focus, as you shared uh, in your introduction, Joelle, is uh, about addressing the issues, the disparities and inequities that are very much rooted in, in race place and income. And, and we've been saying lately that it is about race, place, and income, but the underlying structural racism uh, really exacerbates and drives so much of, 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 of the issues that manifest themselves, whether it's in police brutality, uh, whether it's in uh, the wealth gap, the educational attainment, health disparities, you name it, environmental uh, injustices that are perpetuated on communities of color can all be tied to the issue of underlying racism. And not only are we focusing on this uh, as the Hartford Foundation and marshalling our resources, our grant making, our capacity building, our convening, our public policy, we are a part of a larger group of networks that are uh, under the banner of the Community Foundation Opportunity Networks that are, have committed ourselves to dismantling uh, the structural racism and achieving uh, social, and, uh, social mobility and financial mobility uh, you know, across this country. So having served in local government at the federal level, uh, having come out of the corporate community and now uh, finding myself in philanthropy, it is 
an effort to figure out how to best leverage the resources that philanthropy can bring, how to uh, marry those resources to all the other stakeholders that have to be uh, involved in this and, and, and ultimately find ourselves uh, you know, on this journey to dismantle you know, what has existed for hundreds and hundreds of years that is finally, I think, to the professor's uh, point, coming into the public consciousness in a way that I haven't seen. I didn't live, I wasn't uh, you know, alive during the civil rights movement, but uh, my wife and I have a nine-year-old son and you know, I am seeing for the first time in my life, as she talked about, a, a, a more overt, explicit, um, discussion around the structural racism from, you know, our fellow residents who, who are white, uh, even in the community that I live, uh, you know, I, West Hartford, which is, 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 is uh, predominantly white, but the signs and the discussions and the uh, comfort that people are having being no longer complacent uh, and no longer silent and saying, well, it's a problem, but someone else has to do something about it. So it's, um, you know, to be a part of the Hartford Foundation and, and the colleagues that we have and the stakeholders and partners that we have, uh, it's an exciting time uh, to really, I think, re-energize the, the, the fight against this, this insidious uh, plague that is, is, is uh, upon our country. Thank you, Jay, and thank you, um, Miriam, for your reflections. Uh, it, it's hard not to acknowledge to both of your points that indeed this is a system that has um, been with us for quite a long time. And as we think about, I often have referred to racism as America's Achilles heel. The thing that we don't realize is there until we injure it. And we have indeed injured it once again. And so this is our opportunity to begin that process of rehabilitation, which will not happen overnight. In fact, as we see some of the initiatives and efforts that have been happening as a result of the awareness um, seem to be positioned for um, looking for opportunities to check the box, right? To find ways to move us along in, um, in our nation in ways that we're not quite ready for, right? For those of you who've had an Achilles injury, you know if you try to step on it a little too soon, um, it could be potentially challenging. So as we think about that and we reflect on the fact that for the past two weeks, I'm sorry, two months, we as a nation have watched protests, we have um, seen discussions. What has happened in those two months? What do you think has changed as we reflect upon the opportunity to have these conversations? What exactly is it that has changed? And I see that we have um, Brian who has joined us this evening. So before I, um, I ask that question fully, I just wanted to acknowledge your presence. Um, thank you, Brian, for joining us. Um, both of our panelists have had the opportunity to share an initial statement. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to get situated. Um, Thank you. And I'll, you're welcome. And I'll, I'll pitch that question over to um, Miriam and Jay to respond. So in these two months since George Floyd's murder, um, what has happened? Um, we've protested. We've seen Black Lives Matter painted in streets. Um, what have we seen? What concrete evidence of change have we begun to see over these last two months? Well, I mean, I think for one thing, that video that a teenager was courageous enough to make of Mr. Floyd's murder was, was breathtaking. Um, 
And just, I've thought so many times about the incredibly courageous decision of Mamie Till Mobley to allow her son's casket, Emmett Till, for those of you who are not familiar, who was lynched in the 1950s as a teenager in Mississippi, um, and Mrs. Mobley's decision to let the world see her son's mangled body. And so I think the visual, and it wasn't a gunshot, you know, we, Philando Castile's partner filmed him being shot to death on live on Facebook, uh, on Facebook Live. And that was terrible and it was devastating. Um, but this was a eight, eight minutes of someone looking at the camera with impunity and murdering a person. And I think no, no one with any sense of decency could, could look at that and not see it for what it was and, and deny that, you know, oh, maybe it was this, maybe it was that, maybe it was, no, we saw what happened. And, and over an allegation about a $20 counterfeit bill. Um, you know, <laughs> Eric Garner lost his life over the allegation of selling loose untaxed cigarettes. What, again, what is, what is the worth of a black life? And so that I think is, is one of the things that has made this extremely difficult for people to turn away from. Again, I think probably because of projects like the 1619 Project, because of ongoing conversations, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, which arose in response to Trayvon Martin's killing, right? It, people are, are more attuned. You know, you, you hear something for the first time and you might be able to say, mm, that's not my problem, or that's not, that's not gonna affect me, or I don't agree with that. But the more you see and the more you learn and the more history it, it is put before you, the, the harder it is to deny that there is a deep and entrenched problem in this country. And so I think that in my mind is part of what's going on. And I'm grateful to the authors and artists and filmmakers and philanthropists and historians that have, have insisted on putting race front and center and have insisted on socializing this country so that when incidents like this happen, there's more of a vocabulary and a consciousness around it. Absolutely. I would agree with that. And I would just add to, to the instances that, that uh, Miriam uh, laid out. I would just add, you know, not only are we seeing uh, Black lives lost over trivial valued, whether it's a, a cigarette or, or $20, but again, Botham John was sitting in his apartment watching a movie, eating ice cream, and was intruded upon and murdered by, you know, a, a police officer who claimed to mistake his apartment for her. So sitting in his own home, watching things, something that we do all the time. I mean, when do you get to the point where you're not safe in your own home uh, and mistaken identity that didn't result in, you know, a tase or an arrest or a fight or, but resulted in his death. And so I think that we are perhaps arriving at the point that, that Benjamin Franklin referred to when, when he, uh, you know, said that justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. And I, I dare not correct him, but I would, I would add to that, none of us are unaffected, you know, because even though I, I understand what he's saying, none of us are ultimately unaffected by the injustices that are, uh, you know, uh, brought upon uh, people of color, and particularly, uh, you know, the African-American community that we are, uh, have been speaking about. But I do think that we are, have reached perhaps that level of consciousness. The key here, though, is how do we sustain that? You know, a, a, a viral video can, can create a moment, but it can't sustain a movement. And that's what we have to make sure is that this becomes 
a sustained movement because for every viral video, there are probably in the professionals, there are probably 10 or 20 other instances that weren't caught on film, that weren't circulated on social media. So when the protests begin to recede, uh, when the, uh, you know, the COVID pandemic uh, begins, uh, a vaccine comes and people aren't as uh, isolated and, and, and able to focus on these things, will we be able to, as a country, maintain this momentum or will we fall back into that false sense of security and comfort saying, well, you know, things have seemed to kind of settle in, so we're okay. And without fail, you know, we will find ourselves back in this moment again if we allow that comfort to, to, to lull us into a place of, well, contentment. So I think that, you know, finally perhaps beginning to reach a level of consciousness that we haven't had in some time, but what do we, where do we go from here to me is, is, is more poignant. Absolutely. Absolutely. So many things are running through my head as you were talking. Of course, it made me think about even our discovery of Elijah McClain um, that happened, uh, you know, over a year ago that we weren't aware of. Um, and then, of course, I would be remiss if I did not say that Breonna um, Taylor's killers have still not been brought to justice. Um, and it's been some time. Um, so, you know, to your point, there continue to be moments where we are reminded that this is indeed a pervasive issue. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the marathon continues, right, as um, our young folks would say. And so with that, I'd like to introduce, um, I, I did say young folks, I sure did. Um, with that, I would love to introduce Brian Sims, who is joining us as a panelist. Um, I did introduce you earlier, but to, to bring um, you back into center, I will remind us that Brian is a professional dancer in the Hartford area, um, and he is um, embarking on a wonderful professional career in dance. And I believe I heard, Brian, that you might be sharing a piece with us this evening, or at least engaging us in dance in some mechanism, but this is indeed your opportunity to um, share your perspective as we journey through this conversation around unspoken truths and racial inequity on the heels of the murder of George Floyd. So with that, Brian, I'll give you the floor. Hi, I'm so sorry I'm late, everybody. Can you guys hear me? We can. Good, okay. Um, no, thank, first of all, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Um, it means a lot to be able to use my voice. It's something that I've been doing a lot lately. Um, but just listening to you guys talk and just really having time to kind of think about this, I decided to come tonight and just kind of speak from the perspective of like 20 year old, like African American male, like you asked, since George Floyd has been killed, like what exactly has happened? And I live in the middle of Hartford, like in the middle of the inner city. You basically, some people call it the hood, like, but I live where everything goes on. And I got to see an entire community of people just not know what to do with their feelings. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know whether to burn things down or to protest. They didn't know what to post on social medias. There was, there's not like a self-help book for Black people, for Black youth especially. And when I'm, when I'm speaking right now, I'm really speaking about the Black people that are my age, like 17 to 25. Like these people, we didn't know what to do. 
the artists that are my age, we didn't know what to do. I've seen people try so many things, people speaking out on social media, people protesting downtown, people putting, like myself, putting pieces of art together to try to find a way to kind of cope with this mess. And I honestly feel like none of it has been working. I've been watching people just go around in circles, basically. And I think it's very sad because we are a very special kind of people. We dominate any art form that we enter, any sport, any type of thing. Like we totally dominate it. And what I'm trying to say is I find it crazy when people who work so hard, like my black artists who work so hard, when they're at a loss for words, it's, it's a very serious issue. Like when people who use, people like me who use their bodies to speak, people who use their voices to sing, people who use like written words to kind of express themselves. When these people, when artists are at a loss for words, that is when I think that it is time to really start to take things seriously. Because at this point, I don't even know how to express myself or how to use dance or anything else. You know, like I mentioned, singing, um, writing poetry, writing novels, anything. Like I don't know how to use what I have worked my entire life at to kind of move through this and to kind of cope with this. And I've been watching since George Floyd's like very public um, murder. I've been watching people attempt to cope like so hard, just cope, cope, cope. And it's just not working. I don't feel like people, I know myself personally, I don't feel like my voice is being heard in the way that I would like it to. Um, I speak a lot on social media about George Floyd's killing. I haven't spoken about it a lot about police brutality. And it just, I'm, at, I'm literally at a loss for words. Like me using my art and just being myself like we usually do, it's just not working. And I definitely think we need, I don't know, we need a definite change because usually art, is what I use to make myself feel better. But like I said, when I can't use it to feel better, when I can't use it to make people understand something, like I can't make a ballet piece to make people understand what it, what it means for a black life to matter. Like I can write it in words as much as I want in the description of my videos and I can think it in my head as much while I dance, but I literally cannot I can't make people understand with my art. And it's just driving me crazy. It's something that I see in the Hartford community. It's driving a lot of us crazy. I just, I don't know what to do at this point. And I'm just speaking from, like I said, a 20-year-old a like Black artist right now in this very moment. I literally don't know where to go, what to do. And I know a lot of us are feeling like this, especially in art forms like ballet that are white-dominated. I feel very alone. And I feel like I don't really have too many places to kind of run to right now. Um, everybody is trying to be a very strong advocate. You know, I just gotta say how it is. My white people and ballet is very white dominated. So there are a lot of those in my life, you know, like there are a lot of non-people of color in my life and in my circle. And I see them trying to be advocates and trying to be, um, trying to be that backbone for us. 
Um, and I do appreciate that. But as I said before, I'm just at a loss like for words as to what to do. I was so interested to join this conversation specifically because I want to hear what other people have to say about this because I haven't, I don't even know what to say. Like, what, what change can I bring to this world? What change can I bring to ballet? What change can I bring to anything when my life is not valued at all? And, like and in America. And I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to interrupt, okay. but I think I really appreciate your perspective. I think we all do. And we've been very intentional about making sure that these dialogues are intergenerational. Um, and we ha must acknowledge that in the context of um, our reality that many of us, as Jay alluded to, I, I also was not alive during the civil rights movement, but as a young person participated in a number of programs that were run by the King Nonviolence Institute. Mm -hmm. And as a result was trained, so to speak, in the language of the civil rights movement. I think during that time frame, where in the 80s and 90s, where I know I was coming of age, um, we didn't have a, a, an apparent perceived threat, so to speak. Um, I'm a New Yorker, and I remember Sean Bell, um, and when he was killed um, just before his wedding, um, I remember Amadou Diallo. Um, those are things that um, Eleanor Bumpers, you know, um, the Central Park Five. All of those things happened during my coming of age. Um, so as I, as I reflect on the experience that you are having, we did not have a mechanism uh, via social media or Zoom or otherwise to um, communicate and share with one another. So it's really important that we do hear um, your voices. One of the things that you mentioned in the context of um, you know, how to move forward um, that I think would be helpful to hear certainly from our other panelists as well is what are we doing in the context of all of the uncertainty and disruption, if you will, to our lives, both with COVID, I refer to it as a double pandemic, um, COVID-19 and um, this rash of awareness around inequality. How can we cope? What uh, what suggestions, what perspectives, what ideas would we give to um, individuals in our community who are seeking some guidance and direction as to how we might navigate through this? Um, Miriam, would you um, weigh in on that? Yeah, thank you for that really important question because while Brian was talking, I just kept thinking, this is a collective trauma. It's a collective trauma and it lands on Black people much more concretely and viscerally than it does on non-Black people. And trauma has impact. What he's describing is a traumatic reaction. He's, he's frozen, he's shocked, he doesn't know what to say. His normal mechanisms for joy and expression are not adequate, they're not working. This is something, this is why when I represent clients and my students represent clients, we wanna take a mirror and hold it up to the, to the actors in the legal system and say, this person caused harm, yes, but let's look at all the harm that was caused to them before they harmed anybody else. And that includes the systems of police brutality, a child watching their parent arrested um, in front of them, police battering down doors in neighborhoods in, in 
that our clients grow up in. It includes growing up in, in communities that are over-policed but under-protected so that they see gun violence and stabbings and shootings and death around them all the time from the youngest of ages. I have clients who have amazing parents, amazing family members, and, and live in deeply segregated communities where gun violence is rampant. And it's not because their own parents aren't protecting them. It's because we have not invested in those communities. So this is a collective trauma. And it's important to acknowledge that. And it's important to recognize that we don't have adequate mental health systems in this country to deal with the collective trauma that impacts young people living in these, in, not only in inner city Hartford the way Brian does, but I'm raising black sons who live in a, in a predominantly white suburb and they're absorbing all of this too. They're not seeing it next door to them the, way, the same way but they are, they're seeing things on TV and they're experiencing things viscerally in a way that their white classmates are not. And so we don't have adequate systems in place for this. So what can we do? I have found social media to be a very useful tool during this time. I follow a lot of people on Instagram now who actually post a lot of resources, books, you know, not only just historical books or things that might educate us about the realities, but resources on taking care of ourselves, resources on connecting as a community, you know, finding ways to, to reach people who aren't in our immediate neighborhoods. And that's been tremendous, not to mention friends and family who don't live nearby and we can't see right now, but who provide a source of support for us. So I think social media can be a very positive thing in this time, in this time frame. And I think there's a growing awareness about the need for self-care and about the need for mental health uh, uh, support that I hope is reducing the stigma uh, around that in communities of color. I can speak to it from, I'll speak to it from an organizational perspective of, of perhaps, you know, how we uh, are trying to cope and, and, and how we're moving forward. And we have used these twin pandemics, uh, as you uh, correctly referred to them, Joelle, of COVID and the structural racism to really rethink how we go about the business that we're in and to, and to, to a certain extent, throw the playbook out because we had to. Uh, and... And, and really give ourselves the freedom and the opportunity to be more bold, to be more assertive, to, uh, while maintaining the fiduciary responsibility that we are obligated to and that we very much embrace, also think less about um, uh, the critics and the criticism and more about the impact that we have an opportunity to make. Uh, and sometimes that's manifested itself in knowing that we needed to get resources out to the community, not in measures of weeks, but in measures of days and being able to be flexible and nimble and turn and pivot on a dime and to um, consider the requests that are given to us, not in the context of, well, for the past 20 years, this is how we've done it and it's worked well, but to say we in our lifetime have never faced a crisis of this proportion. And it is literally not. It is literally about life and death, uh, which is, is is new to us because again, we're not a first responder. We're not an emergency provider. Uh, but our ability to get resources into the community, into the hands of the nonprofit partners that we have, you know, in these last several months, have been about life and death, and food insecurity, and access to healthcare. So what I've also seen is given us an opportunity internally to rethink about recalibrate our own internal relationships uh, and to, while minding the well-being of the community, also minding the well-being of our colleagues and our staff. So, you know, we had 
an evolutionary plan for the foundation that we were measuring in six month or 12 month increments that a year from now, this would be a foundation that we aspire to be. I can tell you without hesitation that we will emerge from this crisis a more resilient, more impactful, more relevant, more nimble organization, uh, which is all for serving the community uh, that we are privileged to be in. And, and I think that absent this crisis, you know, again, we still, we may have arrived there at some point. I believe we would have, uh, but I don't believe, and we would have never chosen the crisis to, to emerge from as a stronger organization. But because the crisis is here, it is unavoidable and we have to, uh, we need to survive. We are going to survive and, and emerge uh, stronger and better than we were. So in moving forward, I would say to organizations, you know, to, to understand the crisis and the magnitude of it, but also see it as an opportunity to transform in ways that are more meaningful, uh, more impactful in the work, uh, because you, know, you don't get, hopefully this is the last crisis of this magnitude in our lifetime that we'll face, but you know, even if a vaccine for, for COVID or coronavirus uh, is, is formulated and distributed you know, in the coming days, weeks, or months, we still have the, the longer standing crisis of, of, of the racism, uh, which, you know, the, the, the COVID crisis only laid bare, you know, the, the, uh, many of the issues that we've had. So that's how, from an organizational standpoint, we are seeking to cope with it and to navigate it. Uh, and, and again, the organization is only as good as the people who are part of it. Uh, so we can't, to, to uh, you know, uh, Professor's point, forget or diminish the self-care that is necessary for uh, our staff and employees in the midst of this crisis, recognizing that they've got their own challenges and families and, and, and things that, that they, uh, you know, bear uh, as they simultaneously care for others in the community. Absolutely. Brian, I, I understand that you wrote uh, or choreographed a piece, um, or maybe it was wrote, choreographed a piece. That's um, I choreographed dying black swans. Well, you know, I didn't know if you were a poet and a dancer. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? I'd be glad to. Um, so the dying black swan, um, before I even talk about it, I just want to say that ballet has been whitewashed for hundreds of years and African-Americans haven't really been granted um, a safe space within ballet. So me choreographing this dying black swan piece like around these black dancers was something pretty interesting within itself for many reasons. But the dying black swan is inspired by a ballet solo that basically depicts a dying swan. It's a dying white swan though. Um, just a beautiful swan that basically has been shot by an arrow and she slowly dies like as this beautiful violin and heart music like is played and it's like a, it's a beautiful one woman solo um i got the idea shortly after the pandemic started george floyd was killed and i was just thinking like how can i how can i um express how i feel right now while using my art form like i kind of spoke about before so I contacted a bunch of dancers that I knew and I basically choreographed solos on them, just depicting the death of 
an innocent black person because there were men and females in my piece. So it was just in general, just the death of an innocent black human being. Um, a lot of the movement was based on things that all of us have seen in these police movement was very inspired by things that I've literally seen in videos. Um, even some of the dancers did like the fist, which was our last motif in the dance. So that was pretty interesting. Like choreographing it in itself was interesting. But what I honestly enjoyed the most about creating the Dying Black Swan video was that I got to talk to a lot of African-Americans who are my age that I would have never been able to speak to before about something of this magnitude and that's this serious. I got to kind of touch base with people from all walks of life because we know there are different shades of African-American, if that makes sense. I got to talk to all different kinds of people and people who like, you know, I've been going to public schools my entire life and like, I, like living in Harper, but I got to talk to people who went to private schools and people who have only danced in like all white dance programs. So I got to really get um, different sides to the story. And what I learned from that was basically, we're all, you know, feeling the same way, pretty lost pretty discouraged. Um, we're all looking for ways, all of the artists are pretty much looking for ways to establish and express how we feel. Um, the Dying Black Swan also helped me just figure out how I can use my voice because that's the first Black piece that I've really done ever in my life, that I've ever like choreographed in my life. But it really did teach me how to not just be a, a dance artist or a ballerina or a, an artist. It showed me how to be a Black dance artist and a Black ballerina or a Black artist in general. Like I learned how to put my culture into my work, which I have never been able to do before. Um, Diane Black Swans is up on YouTube. If you like look it up on YouTube, it's there. But it's a collage of a bunch of choreography. There's ballet there, there's contemporary. I even have a local hip hop dancer who joins the group for the piece. So you also get a lot of different styles of black dancers. You don't just get black ballet dancers or like black conservatory dancers. You get a pretty wide variety of them. So I, that was even, it was- show it? Sure. Okay. Let me see if I can make that magic happen. I wonder if I can do it. I can send you the link. I'm going to send you the I link right now. I have it up already. So oh, okay, good. I'm one step ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll see me in there. <laughs> and there it is. I'm going to mute myself. Thank you. Thank you.
That was just powerful. Um, I think you have indeed found your voice. I am confident. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and you know, there are a couple pretty amazing ballet people in that video. Um, Bilal Smith, he has danced with like so many companies from like Dance Theater Harlem, which is like an all black company to like the Charlotte Ballet, which is basically predominantly white. Um, Chase Johnson from Ballet Trocadero. And a lot of the younger people that you see are students in schools, which are like very good schools, like George Mason University. Um, and one of them is a Juilliard student. So that, um, my cast of characters was pretty cool. I loved um, working with them. And I see all of you guys' comments. Thank you so much. And you all can find um, Brian's work was featured in the Hartford Current on June 20th. Um, the link to the YouTube video is there as well if you want to view it again. And thank you again for sharing that with us this evening. Um, so it's hard not to feel a sense of hope when we see um, our young people expressing themselves through various mechanisms and medium um, that will allow us to navigate through and find ways to persist as we continue to dismantle um, a system that has continued to plague us. And so the, the question, actually, the next question, one of the questions that we had was, do you have a sense of hope? And I somehow in the moments just after watching that video have a renewed sense of hope. Uh, but the question before us really is, as we watch and experience as time continues, as days pass, um, as we navigate through our legislative process, as we look at our cities and towns and our suburbs responding, as we see our corporations and our institutions responding, how, in fact, do we dismantle centuries-old institutionalized racism? How do we do this? Where do we begin? Um, Professor Gohara, please help us as you as you bring to this conversation and experience in 
truth-telling as it relates to incarcerated individuals, um, how do we begin to dismantle institutionalized racism? Well, again, I think it's really important to hold our justice actors accountable, right? So, so for in the work that I do, it means not just focusing on what my client did to this person um, and how that landed one single person into the justice system. It's the same thinking that has kept us uh, stuck in, in systems of police brutality over and again. Oh, it's just a bad officer. No, it wasn't just a bad officer. It's a bad system. It's, a bad, po it's bad policies. That's the same. That's the same reason why uh, people get caught in the legal system. It's not because I'm. A, this is a bad person. No, it's a. It's a system that deprives people of what they need to be healthy, and to behave in ways that are uh, restorative in communities. And so, what can we do to get the legal system to invest more in truly rehabilitative services? So earlier, I mentioned my travels to Germany, and in Germany the prisons, they look like prisons, they look like what we know of as prisons, but inside people are offered an array of educational programs, jobs programs, rehabilitative services, therapy, drug treatment that we don't even touch in this country. And what, you know, today I just read something, I just read something in the newspaper, I think it was CT Mirror, about somebody who said they're not going to get rehabilitative services because the crime they committed was, was so bad. And that made no sense to me whatsoever. If you have committed a serious offense, you should be given all the more rehabilitation, right? And so, and again, how do we hold people accountable? How do we offer them uh, restorative justice in, in, in prison so that they can truly be accountable to the people they harm? Those are the ways I think that we're going to start to dismantle and undo one of the pillars of racism in this country, which is the criminal legal system. And that's the one that I know best. I'll leave it to our other experts to talk about, you know, the ways that we dismantle it in, in community economic development or in the art space. But that's the system that I know best and, and that's how I know how to attack the problem. And again, insisting on historical uh, 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 acknowledgement and about accountability from our justice system actors. So one of the um, ways that I've often, the analogy I've been using even because it's been made it more clear for me is acknowledging, understanding that we have to treat this like the structural problem that it is. And I use a home, for example. Too often, we have treated this as a cosmetic problem. We see an issue here, we see an issue there. In your house, when you have a cosmetic problem, you can scrape, you can paint, you can rearrange some furniture, you can get your new shrubbery, and you can do something where you don't have to look at that problem anymore. You feel good, you feel that you've you've addressed that spot on the ceiling or the wall, so you feel a sense of accomplishment. Your house looks wonderful again. That's a cosmetic treatment. If you have a structural problem in your house, there is no inexpensive, convenient, easy way to do it. You have to sometimes take the house down to its studs. Every system in your house is affected by a structural problem. When, uh, and, and unfortunately, there are thousands of people in Connecticut who are experiencing uh, issue with their foundation with the pyrotype and ask those individuals. They sometimes have to move out of their homes. Sometimes the cost to fix the issue exceeds the value of the home. So understanding and acknowledging this as a structural problem in this country, this society that is home to all of us, you can't say, well, it's just, again, something that we can 
fix the leaky pipe or it's a bedroom issue or new coat of paint or we've all talked about it. And I think that acknowledging that means that there is no single place we can or have to start. It has to be simultaneous. When a professor talks about her expertise in the criminal justice system, we need people to pursue that with diligence and with all out abandon while simultaneously having the conversation in the corporate boardrooms. We need those corporations to start uh, taking the actions to whether it's the symbolism or the, um, the other things that have so long been accepted as normal, uh, you know, from Uncle Ben to Angie, all the things that we're starting to see corporations start to, to back away from while simultaneously needing to have the discussion around healthcare and COVID has laid that bare and education. So, you know, this problem affects and permeates every segment of our society. Uh, no one can be an expert at everything, but we need those who will be advocates, allies, assistants, but also what I've heard somebody say, an accomplice. Uh, and the professor knows this, you know, you can have an advocate uh, or, or an ally uh, in criminal justice, and that's important. But if you're convicted of an accomplice, you know, can be sentenced or treated the same way as the, the primary perpetrator. So we need accomplices to help us dismantle this racism who aren't just saying, well, I'll give you access or I'm supporting you, but who are willing to stand there and bear the brunt of all that comes with dismantling a structure that has benefited, you know, a significant part of our population for hundreds of years. When you begin to dismantle that, Believe me, there are going to be some well-intended people that say, oh, 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 wait a minute. I'm all for dismantling this structural racism. I didn't know that meant that I was not going to no longer be able to benefit from a system that I didn't build, but that was benefiting me. So, so that's what we need. And, and I think that there's no single place uh, that we can start, but it's an all-hands-on-deck, sustained effort, an all-out assault uh, against this issue. Thank you. Brian, your thoughts as you reflect on the arts. Um, like Mr. J just said, it's not a quick and easy fix. It's definitely a full kind of surgery that we have to go through. Like it's a full experience that has to happen. But, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. I've already tried to start making small like steps towards changing the arts a tiny bit. Um, there is racial inequity in everything that we do in America. And that rings the same for every single art form, not just classical ballet, not just dance, every single art form, there is racial inequality. And that definitely starts, and I know because I got a late start to dance, but it definitely starts in the communities with our youth, and I would love, like literally love to be able to have more African-American, like budding African-American artists being taught in the community. When I go to the ballet schools where I live at, like the Hart School, um, any school, literally, there are a bunch of smaller schools in the area, but all of them are predominantly white. And I, I can't understand why when I grew up in this community and there's no white kids in Hartford. Like, that's just the reality of it. Um, West Hartford, yes. Surrounding areas, Bloomfield, yes. But where I live at in Hartford, there, the dance program should reflect what I see on the streets. And that's how I feel about all performing arts programs. What I'm gonna do 
to try to push forward our agenda is definitely just give African-American children access to dance and musical theater and poetry and acting. You have to give them access. You have to give them the option. Brian, I think we lost you. I don't know if you can hear us. Actually, at least here where I am, there's significant thunderstorms, um, which is why it has gotten so dark in my room um, where I'm sitting. Um, so I'm not sure if that is impacting folks' access. Um, I do want to acknowledge that we did receive a question. Actually, this is probably a good time to reference it. And I think that we've actually discussed um, some of the questions um, in the context of how can we uh, work with our legislators here in Connecticut to make Connecticut a better place for African-Americans to thrive and own businesses. Um, that is one other segment as we talked about economic development, as we talked about um, you know, certainly opportunities for business owners. Um, one, of, one of the realities in the work that I do, which I've spent the better part of the last two months working with a variety of different organizations, um, both for-profit and not-for-profit, and really beginning to lift up the hood, if you will, to determine where the policies and practices in those organizations um, actually serve to um, be complicit with systemic racism. And you know, many of us hear things like redlining and we talk about them and we, we talk about them as if they have been dismantled when simply they were just transitioned into practices, um, even if laws were um, struck down. And so the behaviors of the individuals in those organizations does in fact retain some of the biases and the assumptions that we've learned long ago. And so the outcome is still similar what we've got to do is work to ensure that individuals find um, changed behavior as one of the priorities on their list to begin to help um, impact the practices that we have held on to that maintain the status quo in our communities and um, really act as barriers to access in many, many ways for, for business owners, whether it be related to access to loans for real estate, commercial real estate, um, or even simply loans to support their businesses in challenging times. Um, so I think we have um, begun to address that question in a variety of ways. Um, I don't know if there are other questions. Please feel free to send questions in. Well, there's another question that just came up. Um, and I think it's going to go into the question, but the question was to all the panelists. And it was the question, uh, the person asking the question was inquiring, do the panelists believe that the police accountability and reform efforts are antithetical to the abolition uh, movement. And I'm assuming they mean the abolish the police. Uh, in my opinion, no, because when I hear defund the police, it is very much uh, like the professor articulated. And, and I, I think I come from it from uh, a perspective of having overseen a police department. Uh, I believe, and we need, I believe, I, I, I believe we need, um, guardian to the community. That was one of the things that was articulated in the president's task force on 21st century policing of the need and the importance of moving on law enforcement from a warrior mentality to a guardian mentality. You know, I don't believe, and, and just with the, the nature of, of humankind, you know, there are people who are going to conduct themselves in ways that are detrimental 
to the benefit of our society and others, and they need to be held accountable. Uh, and the professor talked about this. How we hold them accountable is up for a very reasonable debate. Uh, but I do think that we need uh, guardians of our community. So I don't believe that police accountability reform efforts are antithetical to the defund the police or abolish, because I don't think that you know we. I would love to think we can live in a society without guardians, but I don't think that that's on the table uh, uh, a goal. So. What I will say is I don't think that accountability and reform efforts have gone far enough. I think that we have had too much deference to police unions. Um, we've had too much deference to um, the notion that somehow saying we want transparency and accountability equates to we don't want, you know, or think of law enforcement officers. And, and one of the things that I will also just a quote from uh, the report uh, under one of the pillars of the, of the President Obama's task force is that people are more likely to obey the law when they believe those who are enforcing it have the legitimate authority to tell them what to do. The public confers legitimacy only on those they believe are acting in procedurally just ways. And there have been far too many instances to the untrained naked eye where we've seen our law enforcement officers operating in ways that are not procedurally just. You know, I can speak to my own experiences as an African-American male and, and mine probably, I know, pale in comparison to, you know, many, many others who have seen much worse treatment. So I don't think the two are antithetical, uh, but I think if we have a, a discussion about moving from a warrior mentality to a guardian mentality, understanding the importance of engaging the community and reflecting the values of the community in those guardians, uh, of the community's well-being uh, that I don't see them at odds with one another. I think you make a great point, um, the, the notion of moving from warriors to guardians, because certainly as we look at communities of color, um, you know, the police departments have often been positioned as warriors. And to your earlier comments, just in terms of the level of anxiety that is raised um, simply to be in the presence of, and you know, as you talked about being the mayor of the, of the city and walking into the police department that you had responsibility for and still feeling that same anxiety, it is clear that something must change. Um, Professor Gohara mentioned earlier um, the, the response to the, the term. And I remember feeling similarly hearing the hashtag defund the police but not knowing what the intent was behind it. So I think one of the things too, as we, as we um, you know, sort of think about where we move forward um, from in this conversation is how we move beyond the hashtag, right? How do we get the information that we need as a community to be able to develop clear solutions that will help us to identify, for example, related to the police, ways in which um, police officers can um, support and, and guard the community in ways that they regain the trust of our communities. Um, just yesterday, I was on a call with a local police chief, and one of the things that he indicated was that, you know, they responded to a situation, but we don't have a psychologist on our staff. And one of the questions was exactly that around mental illness. So maybe it was that someone needed to be spoken to in a manner that would allow them to come out of the anxiety that they were feeling or the passion that they were feeling and trying to express to you what was happening as opposed to a warrior 
and now someone is coming to get me, although I may in fact be in crisis. Um, and how, how do you navigate between those spaces in community? Um, we, we also have another question. Um, the question is, how long has the, has the prison in Connecticut been trying to take a more restorative approach? And please forgive me if I am um, adding to your question, because I think there's a word missing. How long has the prison in Connecticut been trying to take a more restorative approach and what are their recidivism rates? So I'm not sure, um, Professor Gohara, if you know any of the statistics around the restorative approach in the prisons in Connecticut, and, and if you know anything about the results. So yeah, so there are two programs that are uh, in Connecticut right now. One's at Cheshire, and it's called the True Unit, um, which I it's an acronym, and I'm never going to get all of it right, but it's um, like truthfulness, respect, understanding, and I forget what the E stands for. Oh, elevating, elevating ourselves. And then in, at York, which is the only women's prison in the state, there's a, a program called WORTH. And again, I don't know the acronym, but it, they're expressly modeled on these German ideas. And what's remarkable about the ones in Connecticut is that incarcerated people themselves, people who are serving very long sentences, are the ones leading the curricula. They are developing incredible programs for providing moral support, educational programming, life skills training, Literally, they have a, a mock banking system. They have, um, you know, resume workshops, but they do much deeper psychological and, and trauma restorative work with the younger people that they're charged with mentoring because it's structured as a mentoring program. What I know is that there's been not one incident of violence in the in the uh, unit in um, at Cheshire. I don't know. I don't know as much about the one at York. And it's been in existence since 2017, and and as compared to about a 45 to 50 percent rate of violence in general population, and these are people who are convicted of very serious crimes. So they're not hand selected, you know, by people who are, um, you know, maybe just shoplifting or something like that. I think the statistics on recidivism once people get out are still being collected because not so many people have been released yet, but what's interesting to me about this question also is that again when I went to Germany. If I asked the correctional officers and correctional administrators in Germany about recidivism, they'd look at me like I was crazy. Why are Americans so worried about recidivism? We don't do this work to prevent recidivism. We do this work because we owe it to people to, to restore them when they have harmed the community. Because when one person's harmed, the whole community's harmed. So we need to help give this person what they need to heal. So it's not about recidivism. And so even, even embedded in the, in the question is an American presumption about the purposes of our criminal justice work. And of course, we all want safer streets. We all want safer uh, communities. And again, my clients hail from communities that are over-policed and under-protected. And we ask our police to do too much because the communities have been divested of mental health treatment, of drug treatment, of support for families. People are impoverished and they're working two and three jobs and they're not able to have the energy or time for their own children, those are failures that everybody has to own responsibility for. Um, and again, uh, you know, one of you mentioned redlining earlier in the conversation. I, you know, it, that is a, a policy with decades-long history and some of the most amazing writing on this. You know, there's, there's of course, Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a piece for The Atlantic some years ago called The Case for Reparations that, that outlines this. And so, we have to, that's, that's what I think about when I think about um, what we could be putting our resources into if we redirected justice resources. And again, I think there are many, many wonderful police officers who would agree that, they, that their jobs are 
are too expansive right now and that they should be focused in a different way. Thank you. Um, we've got just a, a few more minutes. And so I just want to um, allow you both to have a final word. Um, we will have a third in the series of these forum and fora and have really been appreciative to have um, wonderful, wonderful perspectives from a variety of different angles, both tonight and last time. Um, we've, we've talked about social media, we've talked about education, we've talked about the prison system, we've talked about community development, um, we've talked a little bit about um, the police um, in this scenario, and we've talked about steps that we all can take as it relates to beginning to dismantle um, racism. So uh, final thoughts um, from either of you. Um, Jay, if you would begin, um, then we'll move to Professor Gohara. Unfortunately, Brian's phone overheated, um, and so he is not able to get back on. So I'm sure that he would, um, would express his thanks for um, you having him this evening. But Jay, if you would share some words with us, we'll move to Professor Gohara, and then um, we'll issue a call to action to all those in attendance. Well, Joelle, thank you for being such a wonderful uh, and capable moderator uh, to CC Mirror for, uh, you know, the, the supporting host uh, and to uh, Donna uh, Rabbi Berman and, and the Charter Cultural Center uh, and to uh, Brian and Professor Gohara. I've just really enjoyed and have been enriched by uh, the conversation. Um, you know, coming into these sessions, you never, uh, you anticipate and you're never quite sure how the flow, the dynamics are going to occur, but I always walk away uh, gratified and, 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 and more learned than I was walking into it. And that has certainly been the case here. Um, again, you know, this is a, uh, a long uh, journey that we have been on. Uh, there has clearly been some progress, but as has been uh, mentioned many times, you know, there is still much more work to be done. I appreciate uh, the role that I have, the the privilege I've been given, the support from, you know, the community, from the board, from our donors, from the staff, the colleagues that I have. Uh, but all that being said, we stand, you know, at a similar moment in the, in the history of this country. When we think about the twin pandemics, when we think about uh, the challenges that exist with the uh, leadership of this country, there is, um, you know, an election coming up that will, in many instances, uh, be, be defining and, and perhaps challenge uh, the very fabric of our democracy and the processes in which we use. And when you think about all that, on top of uh, these, I, I remain hopeful and optimistic uh, and largely as a result of conversations like this. Uh, so, you know, thank you and, 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 and our role as the Community Foundation for, uh, you know, the Greater Hartford region uh, is something that we don't take uh, lightly and take for granted and look forward to the ongoing uh, engagement, participation, activity, commitment uh, to dismantling, you know, this, this, this pandemic of racism uh, that manifests itself again in so, so many different ways. So again, Brian, good to see you again. Uh, it's been a pleasure and I'll, I'll end there. Thank you so much. Um, Brian, just so you know, we are doing sort of closing remarks. I don't know if you heard that piece. I'll move to Professor Gohara and then you can close this out. Yeah, I'll just really quickly again, thank you so much, Joelle. This has really been an amazing conversation and thank you as well to Jay and Brian and to Rabbi Berman and all the organizers of this and CT Mirror's reporting I follow closely and really appreciate. 
Um, I'm a transplant to Connecticut. I've only lived here since 20, 2007. And I uh, really, really appreciate the opportunity to be in conversation with such amazing local activists, artists, philanthropists, and uh, the community members who are weighing it. And so I will leave it there. Thank you so much. Brian. Um, first of all, once again, thank you guys so much for giving me this opportunity. Sorry, I kind of just got out of work, so I know I'm frazzled and all over the place. Like, <laughs> I literally just walked into the house, like, when I joined this, so I am apologize for that. But I do want to say that it has been an honor um, to even sit here and listen to the words of other generations. I definitely like to hear... <laughs> what everybody has to say. I like to hear what you guys have to say about what I say. Um, I would love to be a part of this in the future again, just on a day where I don't have to work. Um, but um, just in general about Black art, we got to do better with our youth. We have to give them access to art. I would love to see that happen in Hartford, but you know, they say like, be the change that you want to be in the world. Um, I start working with a brand new ballet company that's based in Hartford in September. And one of the main things that I plan on doing is just making sure that we get some POC children in there, some person of color children in the room, in the school, because ballet won't be filled up with people that look like me until... I guess the schools are filled up with people that look like me. So like the professional world can't be black until the schools are black. So I'm gonna be in the future doing everything that I can, you know, to make at least the community where I live um, have some more racial equity in the performing arts. But thank you again, like for this conversation and just the opportunity in general. And thank you for sharing my video. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much to all of you for staying with us. I know um, to share a little bit of cultural connection with you all, as I mentioned, in case you hadn't already known, I am Black. Um, my family is from the South, and my grandmother in particular, um, God rest her soul, would be traumatized that all of us are on phones and computers in the midst of God's handiwork, this thunderstorm. I know some of you can commiserate with um, my feeling. And as you saw, my five-year-old um, heard the thunder and decided that she needed mommy for a moment. So um, I want to thank you all for staying on with us. Um, I do need to thank Charter Oak Cultural Center and Rabbi Berman again, as I was reading the um, sponsors earlier, I understand that it blanked out when I said Charter Oak Cultural Center, and we do not want to forget um, them and their important mission um, and the work that they are doing and have done to um, pull all of us together for this very important dialogue. Um, one thing that I would want to leave with everyone, and there are some comments in the chat, thank you all as well, um, particularly for those of you who have suggestions about our next forum. Um, we will announce that date shortly. It will be coming up within the next couple of weeks. Um, we have another set of fantastic panelists who will join us um, from their very different perspectives as well. Um, one thing I would leave with you, I think that Brian actually said earlier, but um, all of the panelists alluded to at one point that there's an opportunity for each and every one of us to begin to do this work um, from our sphere of influence from our vantage point um, literally one person at a time um, in order to begin to dismantle racism so don't give up hope 
Um, there is opportunity for each and every one of us to begin. And as, as Jay said earlier, this is going to take some significant structural um, or restructural design. And I sure hope that each and every one of you on the call this evening are ready to roll up your sleeves and get to work. Thank you so much as always for being here with us and we look forward to seeing you the next time. Thank you so much.